your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Peter Schwartz. He's a distinguished fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute and the author of In Defense of Selfishness, Why the Code of Self-Sacrifice is Unjust and Destructive. Peter, welcome back to the Dead Dialogues. Thank you, Don. Now, on your last appearance, we talked about altruism, and we stressed how the major justification for the welfare state was the premise that we have a duty to serve those in need. But there's another kind of argument that we often hear, which seems to appeal not to self-sacrifice, but to self-interest. The welfare state or some form of government intervention, we're often told, is good for us. And this will often be put as a paternalist argument. The government's taking care of us. And so I wanted to start there with what is paternalism and how does it actually relate, in your view, to altruism and self-interest? Okay, that's a big question. Paternalism is the idea that the government needs to take care of people because they cannot take care of themselves. It's the idea that you are not capable of making the proper decisions for you. You're incapable of knowing what is really good for you. You know, just like a, a, a four-year-old is incapable of deciding whether broccoli or ice cream is better for him, an adult, on the view of the paternalist, is in exactly the same situation. He cannot know, he cannot uh, um, grasp what is genuinely in his interest, and therefore the government steps in as the parent, as the paternalist, to make those decisions for him. Therefore, we're told what kind of foods we eat, we're told we uh, trans fat, for example, is being banned. Sugared sodas were, were, uh, are banned or heavily taxed to, to discourage it. Gambling is restricted. All of these things and, and a thousand other activities are curtailed or prohibited by the government on the premise that it knows best what is good for us. That's the, that's the idea of paternalism. And so then, I guess the question is, well, why shouldn't they? Isn't wouldn't we want them to do something that's good for us? Well, if it could be done, I guess so. But the point is, there, no good can be achieved by having the government point a gun to your head and say, you must do this or you must not do that. The idea that it somehow can be good for an individual to, in effect, be treated like a child, or worse than a child, to be treated as though uh, he were simply a mindless creature, like an animal on a leash that you've got to lead around and walk and feed and clothe. Uh, this is the opposite of what constitutes the good, the rational good for any person, because we are human beings, and human beings live by their minds. We decide what 
is going to advance our interests and what isn't. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong, but it's always wrong to have our interests decided for us by force. It's always wrong, it's always against one's interests to have the government say, you must do this or you must not do that. The only, the only way for an individual to achieve his good is by grasping by choice, by his own individual choice, what is in fact good for him and what isn't, and then to try to achieve it. If he's mistaken, he discovers that and then presumably tries something else, but he, it's never achievable at the point of a gun. So let's take an example that uh, will often be brought up, and that'll be something like saving for retirement. And people will say, clearly, you need to save for retirement, you need, or at least you need to save for old age. And whether it's through Social Security or the government, let's say, mandating savings, as some critics of Social Security have proposed, it's it would seem to most people that here's something really good for you. Nobody could argue that, well, I shouldn't save anything, and therefore it would be a real disaster to just let them go through life and end up with decades to live and no resources at their disposal. But if you uh, understand exactly what's happening, it will be clear that this is uh, harmful to you. Because what happens is the government, it doesn't just simply issue a an advisory statement saying, you know, it would be nice for people to save for their retirement. What government does is, is to tell you the money that you would have put to some use, perhaps saving for your retirement, perhaps investing in uh, various um, uh, possibilities that would increase your wealth significantly, perhaps you would not save it all for retirement, perhaps you'd want to spend it on other things, but the government says you will not be allowed to make that decision. We're going to take that money from you. We're going to take it, collect, we're going to treat everyone the same. Everyone has to put in to this pot, which in fact does not go for the individual's retirement. What The money that's put into the pot is spent immediately on someone who has already retired, and you then, when you retire, depend on these, similarly on the sacrifice of the next generation of workers who will work uh, to their detriment to supposedly benefit you, rather than letting everyone decide for himself what to save, how much to save, where to put the money. And in fact, if you look at the Social Security system, it's bankrupt. There's no way that it's capable of providing the benefits in the future that have already been promised. Plus, if you look at the statistics, virtually every economist will tell you that an individual who put away the same amount of money that is being confiscated from him by force from his wages, if he put that same amount of money into even a conservative retirement uh, uh, portfolio, he would be far better off upon retirement than he would be than he is today under social security so the system as a whole is a failure and at root the way to look at it is the government is telling you as an individual you cannot decide for yourself 
how and when to save for your retirement. We're going to do it for you whether you like it or not. And that somehow is supposed to be good for you. That's ridiculous. Now, I'm obviously sympathetic to this, but one way that whenever you make a point like that, what you'll often hear is something along the lines of, well, that's fine for the people who are going to make good decisions, but there's clearly going to be some people who act irrationally, and don't we need these programs precisely for them? There will be people who act irrationally, but the most irrational thing of all is to say that we have to penalize the rational people for the sake of the irrational. Where's the justice in that? If you're a, an intelligent person, if you are somebody who plans for more than five minutes ahead into the future, you know you're going to be requiring money when you retire, and you make provisions for that, and the government says, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. We're going to uh, uh, take the money from you decide how it's how it's going to be spent because there are some irrational people in society who will fritter away their money and then wake up one day when they're old and say gee i have no money how am i going to live so it's for the sake of the irrational that the many rational people are penalized and and there can't be a worse injustice than that and the only reason that such an injustice is perpetrated and accepted is the ethics of altruism, because altruism says that you have to sacrifice for others. The haves have to sacrifice for the have-nots. The rational have to sacrifice for the irrational, and that's a, 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 a terribly vicious uh, premise. Now, I think uh, another related facet of this debate is that there's allegedly a bunch of studies coming out every day showing that in fact, human beings aren't rational. Uh, you know, we, we, we make these predictably irrational choices, to quote the title of one book, and therefore need to be nudged, to quote the title of another book. What's your evaluation of these kinds of studies and claims? Well, for, let, let me take a step back before I answer that directly. The whole idea that... Uh, the people that we have studies showing that supposedly people are acting irrationally. What does that mean? That means that the claim is that since people are, are incapable of judging things rationally, they have to be compelled or, quote, nudged, which is a, a soft core version of compulsion, they have to be uh, compelled to do the right thing. Compelled by whom? by government bureaucrats. Why don't they have the same problem? Why aren't they also incapable of judging rationally? They are somehow exempt. They are somehow the elite. They, 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 they're the, uh, you know, like Plato's philosopher king who have this mystical insight into the true reality which the rest of the population unfortunately lacks. That's the whole idea of, of um, this, this paternalism, this idea that the masses are incapable of uh, thinking properly, of, decide, of knowing what's good. Therefore, an elite, which means government bureaucrats, must decide their fate for them. So they must be treated like animals, leashed and led around and told exactly what they may and may not do. Now, the studies themselves, you could, you, the, the, it, it, you could critique 
the, the, the whole methodology of, of lots of these studies, but what, what many of them do is find some supposed, quote, bias that people have. So they, they, they set up some experiment, and uh, it will be shown that, uh, um, what, that people uh, have a propensity for being too optimistic about their future, too optimistic about investments that they'll make. They think they'll be successful when they aren't. And this is supposed to show that people are inherently irrational and therefore have to be uh, shackled by the government and told what to do. And it's ridiculous. Uh, it's true that there, there'll be people who are too optimistic about their uh, future plans. They'll discover their mistakes. They'll, they'll make adjustments, presumably. If they don't, they will suffer the consequences. But what sense does it make to have the those who are successful ha uh, suffer for the sake of those who aren't? If you let people alone and they know that their lives are their own responsibility and they're not they, they they're not told that the government will supposedly take care of them, then they will be forced to think about whether their decisions are in fact correct. And if they just decide to spend all day lounging around, uh, uh, spending the day at racetracks, rather than looking for a job, they will find that there is no compelled support coming from the rest of society, and they will quickly realize that it's not in their interest to spend the day at the racetrack, and it is in their interest to go find some uh, uh, remunerative work. Uh, but the, 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 point, the point of this, the, the, the basic point is this. The people have, uh, adults, have a rational faculty, unless they're, you know, some physical impairment to their brain. But virtually everybody is capable of thinking rationally, and the political system needs to encourage rationality, not discourage it and penalize it. And the, the whole system of paternalism does exactly that. It penalizes the intelligent, the successful, the productive, and the rational. Yeah, I mean, my view of many of these studies is that they actually they're doing something valuable in the sense that they're showing if you're not methodical in your thinking if you're not conscious and and, and deliberately try to think through decisions in effect going by the seat of your pants goes wrong in these certain ways and so you should be deliberate in order to avoid going wrong in these certain ways but i, I think it's definitely true that that's not generally how they're presented and certainly not how they're used politically Yes, and, and what, however they use you, there, there's no denying the fact that people are capable of reasoning, they're capable of thinking, however much a particular individual chooses not to think, and there are people like that, he is nonetheless free at any point to grasp the self-destructiveness of that choice and to decide, well, you know, I, I, I better have think if I want to stay alive and I want to plan for my future. Some... Now, excuse, I, I never yeah. answered fully your original question. Can I return to that? Well, I was actually going to ret return to it. I think this question would return to it and, and set it up uh, in a slightly different way, which is there's something funny about the paternalistic argument in that 
you're in effect telling people you're stupid, so let's help you. And it is not clear to me why, or at least it's it's interesting why it would be that that would be a persuasive kind of argument. Well, it's I wouldn't call it a persuasive argument because it's not an argument. It's appealing to certain people who want to be taken care of. It's appealing to the people who don't want to exercise responsibility for their own welfare and their own happiness. They, they say, okay, I'll just do whatever I want and the government will take care of me. You know, it's the equivalent in the corporate world of being too big to fail. They know that uh, if you're big enough, then there, there's no uh, error or no, uh, no irrationality that uh, you can undertake that will, that will not, uh, you, you'll not be rescued from by the government. The whole, the, the, the premise that people are going to be uh, saved from their own errors and their own irrationality is exactly what fosters that irrationality. It, it makes it seem reasonable. Not reasonable, but it makes it, it, makes it um, consequence-free. And you've got to allow people to experience the consequences of their choices. And that's what will encourage people to make better choices. And if they don't, okay, they don't, but there's no basis, there's no earthly reason to punish the people who are successful, the people who do plan ahead, the people who are trying to be rational. There's no earthly reason to punish them for the sake of the people who don't want to be responsible for their job, for their lives and don't want to think. Um, so yeah, then let's go explicitly back. I think we've set a good framework for, to go back to the original question, which is it, paternalist arguments often seem like an appeal to self-interest rather than altruism. What's your evaluation of that? Because in your book, I think you make a really interesting point that it's, it's actually coming from an altruist way of looking at the world. Yes. The, 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 the altruist philosophy is that people are essentially helpless and that therefore uh, need is the primary consideration. They view life as the equivalent of being in a perpetual lifeboat. They're always facing emergencies. People can't survive without the sacrifices of others. That's their view of, of, of man and of the universe. Therefore, they say, we've got to set up a, uh, an overseer, the paternalist, the, which is the state, to tell people how to navigate these uh, impossible seas so that they can survive. We have to force some people to sacrifice for others because tomorrow those people themselves will be the recipients of sacrifices from perhaps the very people that they uh, helped earlier. It's a perpetual cycle of sacrifice that defines the relationships among people rather than the cycle of production and trade, which in reality is what defines a proper relationship among people. So the government says, you can't take care of yourself, you have to, we have to take care of you, and therefore we have to tell you how to live. What you, if, if we're going to feed you, we have to tell you what you may or may not eat. 
uh, and so forth. The whole goal of this paternalistic outlook is a collectivist one. It's the idea that you, the individual, don't really matter. The individual life is not what's important. It's the, the existence of the collective that matters. And the individual is just a cog in this big social organism. And his job is to serve the needs of the collective. His job is to sacrifice his interests, his goals, for the sake of society as a whole. And therefore, when the government tells you don't eat uh, sugared foods, don't put too much salt uh, on, your, on your meat, uh, make sure to have a carbon monoxide detector in your house, uh, don't gamble, all of those things are so that you can be preserved to serve your duty to the collective. We don't, it, it's not as though the, the, the government recognizes the value of the individual because that's contrary to the philosophy of altruism. Altruism is a, is, 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 leads to collectivism. The idea is that we have these cogs. They're part of a uh, supposedly well-functioning machine, and we've got to keep that machine going, and it, the machine requires that you be alive and healthy in order to do your duty, in order to you know, produce the goods that you then have to sacrifice for the sake of uh, others in society. So it is not, this, this idea of paternalism is certainly not based on the premise that we want the individual to be uh, happy and successful, because if you did, then you just leave him alone. It's based on the idea that he has no right to his own success and happiness, has no right to his own life. He has to serve the needs and the wishes of the collective, which means the demands of the state. So it's been about 20 minutes, and I think we've covered maybe uh, two or three pages of what's in your book. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about your book, In Defense of Selfishness, because I think it's it's just packed with a lot <laughs> of really penetrating insights on a whole range of issues, but it's not scattershot. It gives you a really integrated way to think about a lot of the cultural and political issues. And so maybe you can give them just a, a flavor for what you're doing in the book and what you cover. Yes, thank you. Well, the, the basic purpose of the book is to undo the, the most serious misconceptions people have about the nature of selfishness and also about altruism. So the, the, the most important thing is to understand what, as I explained in the book, what selfishness really means, that selfishness does not, does not mean being a predator, living off the, the, the blood of others, victimizing people like a Bernard Madoff or any crook or criminal or some, uh, uh, you know, brute, some savage like Attila the Hunt. That is not inherent in selfishness. Selfishness means being... Uh, uh, dealing with other people by offering them value for value, not seizing what they produce, but trading what you've produced for what they've produced to mutual benefit. 
it, it means not sacrificing yourself to others, but also on the same for the same reason, it means not sacrificing others to yourself. It means living in a world where you don't deal with others by sacrifice, but you trade value for value. That's the most important lesson uh, that the book uh, conveys. And then the rest of it is, 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 is an amplification of some of the consequences of the alternative, of the, the idea of altruism, the idea that you must sacrifice for others, that you don't have a moral right to your own existence, you don't have a right to live for your own sake, you must become a means to the ends of others. You must become a servant to their needs, and I mean servant literally, because that's what a servant is. A, a, a servant or a slave is somebody who does not, is not allowed to pursue his own interests. He has to serve his master. And altruism makes you a moral slave. It says you cannot live for your own sake. You must subordinate your needs, your desires, to those of others. You must serve their needs. That, that, that If people understand what altruism really means and what selfishness really means, I think they would have a whole different uh, um, moral philosophy guiding their life. And just for um, a lot of our listeners are huge fans of Ayn Rand, and they probably have read The Virtue of Selfishness. If you could just say a little bit about what distinguishes your book from hers. Sure. Uh, her book it provides, particularly the, 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 the first chapter on objectivist ethics, provides the philosophic foundation for a, a, a radical theory of egoism, her view of rational selfishness. And the rest of the book, too, most of the chapters in the book deal with various principles within the field of ethics, you know, how to uh, deal with compromise, the nature of compromise, uh, what are, is there some special ethics that pertain to emergency situations? Uh, what is collectivized ethics? I mean, the, the, hers it deals with these uh, uh, theoretical issues. Mine builds on her foundation, and my, I would say my book is more of a cultural analysis. It's, it's an examination of how altruism pervades our culture. It, it, it's it's, a, it's a, a detailed um, exploration of the ramifications of altruism, of why, uh, uh, how it shapes people's decisions, both in the personal and political realm, how it affects them psychologically, why it, is, why it has such an appeal, despite the fact that it offers no justification for its demands. So the, the book presents a, 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 a look at our culture and shows how altruism uh, is, is, is the dominant influence in the decisions that are made on all across the board and offers a, 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 an egoism as a rational alternative. In addition, there are some theoretical uh, points that I think will be new to objectivists, such as the, the, the uh, altruist distorted interpretation of need and, and the, the, the idea of uh, altruism contrary to, to, to widespread belief, altruism actually is incompatible with moral principles as such. So there, there, there are a number of theoretical points that will be new, but the, 
overwhelming um, uh, value is in the book's approach to looking at how our culture is shaped by a certain moral philosophy, what those consequences and effects are, and then how uh, there's a rational alternative to it. So how can people find more about the book, about you, about your work? Well, they can go to my website, peterschwartz.com. That's Peter, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com. And the book is available everywhere. They can go to Amazon. The book is In Defense of Selfishness. Uh, it's on Amazon uh, and uh, anywhere else they care to look for it. My guest today has been Peter Schwartz. Peter, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Okay, Don, it was my pleasure. Thank you. There's a lot of valuable stuff in this episode, but for me, one of the most important takeaways was that contrary to what President George W. Bush had said, freedom is not written on the heart of every person. To the extent that people want their needs to be automatically fulfilled without effort, or to the extent they desire unearned wealth, unearned health care, unearned security, you just cannot have a free society. Freedom can't exist unless people value independence. You can only have a free society if people want to guide their own life by their own thought, their own choice, their own judgment, and their own effort. And this is one reason why the fight against the welfare state and for freedom and capitalism is first and foremost a philosophic battle. The altruist collectivist worldview we talked about in this interview, it says that independence is impossible because we're all a bunch of Homer Simpsons and that it's immoral because by leaving people free to live an independent existence, we would be cruelly and callously letting all these Homer Simpsons fail and starve. Even if we are so naive to think that we're rational, our moral duty is to sacrifice our independence for the sake of those who aren't rational. Now, one way to challenge that view is to focus on the obvious contradiction, which Peter pointed out, that, well, if we're all too irrational to be able to govern our own lives, how can it be that there are these elites capable of controlling other people's lives? But that only gets you so far. Much more important is to be able to defend the actual positive fact that we are human beings with the faculty of reason, that we have the power to use our reason or not, and that with the rare exception of the severely handicapped, if we do choose to use our reason, we can support our own life and achieve our own happiness. And only if we're left free. More than that, it's that it's right to pursue our own life and happiness, not to be treated as servants of others above all those who choose not to be rational. So that's the kind of positive philosophic view that you need to be able to defend if you are to defend freedom. Or to put it more the way that it should be put, it's because that perspective is true that freedom is right that people should be free. And of course, this is what the philosophy of Ayn Rand provides. Now, I think Rand is often thought of as a political thinker, primarily a political thinker, but the truth is that she's first and foremost a philosopher interested in these deeper questions about human nature and morality. And in my judgment, it's the only philosophy that's ultimately consistent with freedom. It's the only one that can actually defend the proposition that human beings can and should govern their lives by reason in a free political system. So 
I definitely want to encourage anyone who is interested in these issues and who enjoys this podcast to definitely delve deeper into Rand's philosophic views, even if your interest is primarily political. Um, I think the the primary value that they have is to your life as an individual, but they're also, I think, crucial for being to able to defend freedom and oppose the welfare state. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash debtdraft and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 